Good morning. This morning's scripture readings come from the books of Matthew and Acts. The first reading is Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The second reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostle and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between them between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among them, among the Gentiles, through them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning, church. My name is Mark Montgomery. I am one of the pastors here at Ebenezer. And you know, as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I learned something new. I love it when that happens. Do you know that there is a job out there called evolutionary biologist? Never knew that. In fact, there's one that works at uh, at Purdue University. He goes by the name of William Muir. And uh, he was studying productivity. And apparently, he thought chickens were the best way to study productivity because all you have to do is count their eggs. If it were only that simple for us, right? So uh, what he did is he created this test and... He had two flocks of chickens. So what you need to know about chickens is they don't do life alone. They're always together. They're in a flock. That's what they do. And so flock A was your average, everyday flock of chickens. And he left them alone for six generations, just doing whatever it is chickens do. I guess they peck and eat stuff and lay eggs. So he left group A, flock A alone. And then because he's an evolutionary biologist, wanted to see what would happen if he messed with the production of eggs and so or or chickens and how they reproduce. And so what he did is he went over and he went to all these other flocks and he picked out of all these other flocks the best, most productive chicken in all of them. 
right? We'll call them super chickens. So he would pick out all these super chickens and he put them together for, you guessed it, a super flock. And then he tried to take over the world. No, he didn't. That was... Why did you need chickens to do that? That's ridiculous. So he, he uh, over six generations, what he would do is every time uh, they were about to reproduce, what he would do is he only allowed out of the super flock the most productive super chicken to reproduce. So the chicken that laid the most amount of eggs, those were the ones that could reproduce. And he did this for six generations. So at the end of his study, he went back and he went over to flock A. You know what he found with the average, ordinary flock? He kind of just let them do their own thing. He found that they were healthy, their feathers were bright and shiny, and their production, their egg production, had increased dramatically. He didn't do anything. And then he goes over to the super flock, and do you know what he finds with all these super chickens? Well, there's only three left. They'd pecked each other to death. Uh, I guess it's a pretty tough world being a super chicken and super flock, right? Not only do the strong survive, but if you're weak, you're going to get pecked to death. So what do super chickens, super flocks, chickens have anything to do with anything other than being awesome? Talking about super flocks and super chickens. What does that have to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why am I talking about it today? As I look around our society and I see increased violence... As I look around our society and I see that we have a government shutdown because we have an inability to communicate any longer. And not just in the government, but in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our circle of friends, we have become divisive. We're unable to be civil any longer. And I feel like we're just waiting around to peck each other to death. So how do we change this? Well, Scripture's clear, Jesus is clear about the function of the church. The church is to be the change and the main transforming function that God will change the world. So how do we, the church, how do we as Christians be exactly who Christ has called us to be and be the change in this world? How do we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, experience real life transformation so that as we follow Jesus Christ out into the world, the world would be different because of it? How do we do this? Well, we've been talking in our series, Be the Change, uh, about the Beatitudes. We've been focused on the Beatitudes that are found in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus' most famous sermon in Matthew 5 through 7. The last two weeks, we've looked at blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. And Pastor Rob invited us last week, instead of looking at these as individual statements, what if we looked at them as a process of discipleship? That as we took seriously what it means to embody these characteristics, that as we move through the Beatitudes, we might become exactly who Jesus Christ has called us to be, both as individuals and as a church. And so we look at, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they realize they can't do it all on their own. Blessed are those who mourn, because not only did they realize and recognize they couldn't do it on their own, but... They repent and mourn the fact that they ever tried to. And they find blessing, a rich blessing, through the hope that they desire as they move forward. This week, today, we're going to look at Matthew 5, 5. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. All right, so what do you think of when you think meek, right? You think weak and little, 
and timid? Well, I want to invite you to rethink that. In fact, uh, as the French are translating this word meek, do you know what they come up with? They come up with debonair. That's fun to say, right? Debonair, oui, oui, monsieur. I don't know French, and if you're French, I apologize for insulting you. Uh, just now, I'm terrible. Uh, but what they say is debonair, and the word debonair, at least in this context, means somebody who understands who God is so well that they count their lives as nothing and would gladly give their lives over for love's sake. In fact, the Greek word literally translated means goodwill toward humanity and a reverent obedience to God. Meek does not mean sad resignation. So I would argue, or at least put forward to us today, that instead of translating that as meek, we'd receive it as humble. The word humility. You see, over the last two weeks, uh, we've been looking at recognizing our need for humility and letting go of our pride. And so what humility does is it takes us in the process from recognizing our need from humility toward understanding how to be humble, right? Recognizing, it takes us from recognition toward understanding. That's what humility does. Humility is more than, is more than recognizing I'm not enough. It's saying, I might learn from somebody else how we might move forward together. So there's a story called Grapes of Wrath or Grace by Barbara Brokoff. And she tells a story about these American tourists and they're in Rome. If you guys ever been to another country, uh, you might find that in certain countries, the pedestrian traffic laws are a little loose. And so they were on this tour with an English-speaking tour guide, and uh, they were in this bus, and they were getting dropped off at a basilica and a piazza, and there were all these lanes of Roman traffic. As they got dropped off, they went into the basilica, and as the Americans were coming out, the tour guide saw in horror what was about to happen. Right? They saw that all of the Americans were kind of spread out, and the bus was on the other side of traffic. So it looked like they were about to play leapfrog with Roman drivers, and and so the, uh, the tour guide shouts out, Stop! Stay together! You cross a one by one, they hit you one by one. Now that's a cross between a Russian and Italian accent, I recognize, but it's a pretty good one. <laughs> and the tour guide says, You cross together, they, they, they think you hurt their car. They won't hit you. Right? There's something to be said for unity, especially unity by the Holy Spirit. So what I love about this story is this. They didn't, the Americans in the story, they didn't try to flag the drivers down and say, excuse me, excuse me, can you stop? I'd like to talk to you about my position on pedestrian traffic and why you might slow down when we cross lanes, right? They didn't try to discuss it with the drivers. They didn't get together and decide, let's write a policy, submit it to the Roman government, and maybe, just maybe, they'll change the laws to be more pedestrian friendly. They didn't go get signs and picket uh, the traffic and protest the fact that Roman drivers were driving too fast. No, what they did is they came together and by their unity, as they moved forward together, completely changed their surroundings. Humility is recognizing that while we may disagree on the best way forward, on the best way to cross the road, we all agree that we must move forward together. It's out of that sense of humility that we're able to do that. 
that by our unity that we would realize that there's a mission that God has called us to accomplish. And together, our mission is to be a part of God's work for the advancement of his kingdom. And and friends, can I tell you what that is? That's a higher calling than anything else we have in this world. And here's the cool thing about a higher calling is it transcends all this other stuff and it allows us to then begin to see when we focus on our higher calling, it shifts our perspective on how we see people. Not as objects to use, but as people to understand, to love, to value. So Jesus is pretty clear that we need to be careful about what influences our lives or who influences our lives. But he's also fairly clear about the exact kind of influence we as the church and as God's people need to have on this world. In fact, Jesus was asked, Rabbi, teacher, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, well, the first greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. You need to love your neighbor as yourself. And that word love means a self-sacrificing love. And so the, the man in the story asked, well, Jesus, who's your neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And what you need to know about that story is Samaritans and Jewish people, they hated each other. They disagreed uh, politically, culturally, and religiously. I mean, they had all the right kind of uh, bad beliefs against each other that they, they literally hated each other and looked down on one another. And so he tells the story about this man who was Jewish, who had been beaten within one inch of his life. He was left for dead on the side of the road. And another Jewish man comes by and and sees this man dying. Now, this Jewish man that walks by, culturally, obviously they have a lot in common. Uh, Their belief system, they believe religiously the same things. And in proximity, they're neighbors. But the Jewish man who's walking on the side of the road who sees another man dying, another Jewish man dying, keeps on walking. The second man comes by, he's Jewish too. He's got to get to church. He doesn't have time to help anybody, so he's got to hurry up and go. The third man who comes by is a Samaritan. He sees this Jewish man dying, and what does he do? He does everything that he can from a place of sacrifice to save this man's life. And then Jesus asks, who do you think in this story is a neighbor? To which the man replies, well, the Samaritan. Jesus reminds us that everybody's our neighbor. And that the way we're supposed to influence and love our neighbors is through a place of love and self-sacrifice. That's the kind of influence that changes the world. Now, here's the thing. I could uh, give you all sorts of examples of what it means to love our neighbor as ourself. I've looked on the Internet. You know, I have stories. But this week, in our church, there's a man who asked us to pray. Because he has a neighbor who needs a kidney. He's dying. He's on dialysis. And so he asked us to pray because this member of our church, his name is Sean, he has decided that God's called him to give his kidney away to his neighbor. And the surgery is on Tuesday. And he prayed that the man would be healthy and that this young man would be healthy enough to, to receive it. And here's what I know about Sean. When Sean realized that his neighbor who's young needed a kidney and a new shot at life, do you know what? He didn't go to his neighbor and say, hey, but before I give it to you, what do you believe politically? Like, are you Republican or Democrat? Right? He didn't ask him what his his cultural or religious beliefs were. He said, you know what? There's somebody out there who's my neighbor who needs help. 
and I'm going to do everything that I can from a place of sacrifice to literally give a part of myself to help somebody else in need. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that kind of influence can change the world? Because I do. So there's this book called Anatomy of Peace. Uh, It's written by the Arbinger Group. Now, Pastor Rob's going to tell you that it was his idea to recommend the book to you, but I'm preaching this week and I'm doing that, so it's up to you to decide. But I'll tell you, we've both read this book in preparation for this series, and I would invite you, if you want a practical way of, of how to really have these difficult conversations, read that book, The Anatomy of Peace by the Arbinger Institute. And it... One of the many things that they do, they give two ways that we can influence people. If we really want to love our neighbors self-sacrificially, there's two ways, two options of influencing others in the world, right? Option one is we can focus on the things that are going wrong. And so what that means is, right, when there's, some, when there's a problem or a perspective or a behavior that we want to fix, that we would put our focus on the issue over the person. Right? We focus on the things that are going wrong. The second uh, way of influence that they argue for or that they address is helping things to go right. This happens when we support the person first and over time through care and concern and mutual understanding uh, kind of comes about and a way forward occurs naturally. So they tell this story, right, uh, about to showcase of options of how to influence with by focusing on getting uh, on things that are going wrong or focusing on helping things to go right. They tell a story about a father and a teenage daughter. You know where this is going, right? The teenage daughter was dating a boy that the father didn't approve of. And so at first, the father focused on what was going wrong. He focused on the issue, and he said he demanded, because he didn't like this boy that she was dating, he demanded that she no longer see the boy. He said, I decree that in this family, you can no longer date this boy and totally worked, right? She totally stopped dating him. No way, right? All it did was it drove a wedge between him and his daughter and it sent her flying over the the arms of this boyfriend. He focused on what was going wrong, but then he switched his strategy and somewhere along the way he decided, you know what, I'm going to focus on things that are going right. I'm going to put value on the person over the problem. I love my daughter. And I know she likes this boy, so maybe I can like him too. She, yeah, so the father invited the boyfriend over for dinner. Freaked his daughter out, by the way. They were eating dinner together, and they struck up this friendship. And then all of a sudden, they started hanging out, the father and the boyfriend, and they became really good friends. Uh, yeah, so then the daughter broke up with the boyfriend, right? <laughs> Dads, you're welcome. That is a great strategy, and it works every time. If we're trying to ask ourselves, if the question is, how do we move from recognizing our need to be humble to actually becoming and understanding how to be humble, then here's the answer. We must begin to see people more than their issue or perspective. We've got to start seeing them as people. People that we can understand, people that we can love. Now, we have to be careful because our influence cannot be secret manipulation. Right? The way that we support each other can't be secret manipulation. But here's what I know about myself. If Mark Montgomery has a problem or an issue, it's going to be a whole lot harder for me to see that in myself than it is for me to look out at all the people around me and see all the issues and problems that everybody else is carrying. So what I mean to say is, 
it's good and right to recognize those problems and recognize those issues, but we can't stay or remain in recognizing them. We have to move from recognizing the issues and the problems toward understanding and seeking to understand the people. Because then and only then can we move forward together in humility. And I think, uh, as I look at the early church, I think as they, they struggled with how to move forward civilly, with civility, and, and how to face difficult challenges. And so uh, one of the things that they really struggled in was asking the question, who's in or who's out? Right? What do you need to do to be able to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 15. We're going to focus on 7 through 12. And if you have a pen with you, or a pencil, I'd invite you to get that out. We're going to underline a couple things. And as you're turning there, they were asking this question, what did Jesus mean when he said, I want you to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? What did Jesus mean by that? Because the question that they were, were asking was, the people who followed Jesus, at least in the early church, in the early days, were most likely Jewish men in their families, right? So they had most likely been baptized. They had most likely uh, followed the law to the best of their ability. And because of all that, they were now uh, following their Jewish rabbi teacher, who was Jesus, and they became Christian. But they didn't let go of their Jewish heritage and laws and all that stuff. So they wanted to know, do Gentiles as adults, do they need to get circumcised? Do they need to follow the law? Do they need to do what we need to do in order to follow Jesus? The really important question that they're asking is, can you eat bacon and love Jesus too, right? Because here's the thing, these Gentiles were showing up with maple bacon and it looked delicious. It was ticking all the Jewish people off who followed Jesus. It was tough. So we see in Acts 15 that this council in Jerusalem had been formed of all the elders. And here's what you need to know about the people in the room. They loved each other. They'd been through it together. They had been through everything together. And so they came together, and then Peter stands up, Rocky, the rock, right? Somebody that they all respect and love and trust. And he says in verse 7, Acts 15, he says, brothers, brothers. He didn't lead off with the issue. He focused on the people in that room who were his brothers. Here's what I know. I'm an only child. If you're going to call a friend family... It's because you have a supportive relationship with them and you understand each other as people. Forget about the issues. You love each other because you understand each other. Brothers, he says. And then he goes on in verse 7. You know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. Verse 9 is my favorite. He did not discriminate between us and them. For why do you try to test God? Uh, I'm sorry. He didn't try to discriminate between us and them. For he purified their hearts by faith. He purified their hearts by faith. And he goes on by saying, look, I don't think we should circumcise Gentiles. They shouldn't follow the law. We can barely keep it, if, if at all. And we should be able to have bacon and love Jesus too. Amen? So... You have Peter to think that we can all have bacon and love Jesus. This is a good day for the church to say amen. Do you know what his brothers said? The people in the room? 
You know, you know how they responded? Because here's the thing. If you're going to tell a bunch of Jewish men that they don't have to follow the law of God or that new believers don't have to, and you're in Jerusalem, that could get you killed. Unless the people in the room are focused on the person and not the issue. Here's how his brothers respond in verse 12. It's on the screen. And if you have that pen, you can underline those words that I've got underlined. They, the whole assembly became... The whole assembly became silent as they listened. They became silent as they listened. And you know, they listened to Paul and Barnabas. Paul was a relative newcomer. And to be honest with you, he wasn't the type of personality that was going to attract more honey or more bees with honey, right? He was kind of a, kind of a tough guy. But because of what Peter said, because he focused on the people and not the issue, they were silent. And they listened. And then Paul and Barnabas began to tell about all the great stuff that God had done through them to the Gentiles. And it, and it was an amazing thing to hear and witness. You know, when I was 18 years old, I knew everything. Right? Anybody else have that problem? I was 18 years old and I knew everything. I didn't need to go to college. I just went because my parents wanted me to. It's fine. That was my 18-year-old self-talking just now, not Mark Montgomery, who's mature. So I was 18, and one of my favorite hobbies when I went away to college is I love to call my dad, and I love to challenge him on his political viewpoints. It was awesome, because here's the thing. He was he really knew what he believed politically. To me, he seemed like he was set in his ways. And so uh, I knew that I could just call him, get him all riled up, and I could just pop that popcorn and eat it, listen to him on the phone. It was awesome. It was not awesome. Uh, in fact, w- the reason that I did that is because I felt that his political beliefs meant that he didn't love people well enough. That what he wanted to do through the government meant that he just didn't love the people around him good enough. And, and I wanted to challenge him so that he could see the light. Side note, that's not at all what I wanted to do. That's not at all why I, why I did it at all. It's what I told myself. But do you know why I did it at 18 years old? It's because... It's because my dad was so sure of what he believed and I didn't know a thing about what I believed. And it made me feel inadequate and it made me feel insecure because spiritually I was still struggling through what I believed. Politically, I didn't have a clue. And and the fact that my dad did it, it just kind of set something off in me that made me feel insecure. So I just want to speak to all the moms and dads who have Uh, students in high school, students in college, or young adults, and they're challenging you on on your beliefs, it's not because they hate you. It's not because they don't like you. It's not because they don't even like what you believe or not. It's because you feel so strongly about what you believe, and they feel inadequate and insecure about what they are not sure about how they believe. And so I just want to invite you, maybe instead of focusing on the issue or the problem, you might focus on the person instead. I might get you a little further because here's what happened. It didn't happen when I was 18. It happened when I was 20. I'll never forget. I called my dad. I had something good to tell him. I was going to really get him good. He didn't yell at me. He just listened and it kind of freaked me out. My dad just listened over the phone. I couldn't eat my popcorn. You know, the show wasn't happening. He began to listen to what I had to say. And by the end of it, after I was done talking, he said, you know what, son? I get it. You love people and so do I. Man, that blew me away. Because he wanted to understand me well enough to, re- to really know what I was saying. And, 
And more than that, he wanted to understand me for me. And then he said something that to this day has stuck with me. He said, son, I don't have it all figured out, but I am confident that together we can find a way forward. Man, can I tell you that that has changed my way of thinking? That influenced me in ways I cannot tell you. If our goal is only to get the world to look the way we want it to, then guess what? The strongest way will win and the losers will lose because we will peck each other to death. God doesn't call us to be super chickens in a super flock pecking each other to death that serves no purpose for the advancement of his kingdom. No, God calls us to be ordinary average people who God can transform and use to do amazing kingdom working things. If we, the church of Jesus Christ, are going to be the change that this world needs Our goal must be to move forward together from a place of humility. Instead of focusing on what's going wrong, we need to begin focusing on helping things to go right, to love our neighbors as ourselves with a self-sacrificing love. That's the kind of influence that changes the world. Now, here's the thing. I know it's not easy, and I am not asking you to give up your political beliefs or anything that you believe necessarily what I'm or your positions In fact, I want to invite you, we cannot be fickle in our core beliefs, especially about our faith in Christ. But here's what I know. As much as we believe in God, God believes in the person that you disagree with. God may not agree with their perspectives or their political opinions, but God believes in who he's called them to be. And here's the thing, God wants to use you and I to leverage the influence that we have in such a way that we are able to love our neighbor as ourself and through a seeking of humble understanding, we might love the people around us that together we would move forward, not for the advancement of of a political position, but to be a part of God's work in advancing the kingdom of God that the world might be changed by it. Friends, may we be humble and move beyond recognition towards understanding because Scripture's really clear. The loud and proud are not going to win out. It's the humble. It's the meek. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this for the grace you've given us through Jesus Christ, for the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. And God, as we continue as your people to try to find meaning in this world and figure out who you've called us to be in the midst of it, Lord, I pray that for all of us gathered, Lord, that we would be willing to move from recognizing our need from humility to seeking understanding on how to be humble, that we might love others the way you call us to, self-sacrificially, that Through our influence, you might use us to change the world, to transform all of us, that we would be exactly who you've called us to be, and that by our unity, our surroundings would be changed and different. We pray all of this, thanking you for the grace you've given us through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in his good and holy name. Amen.